when I was uh, growing up, my parents didn't really like going to the movies very much. They were much more book people. Um, and so we read lots of books, but they didn't take us to the movies often. But whenever I would visit uh, my, my aunt and uncle and my cousins in Arlington, they loved going to the movies. And so w- one of the, the, the f- great achievements of my childhood is I got to see Back to the Future at the theater uh, as a child. And that was a cool, cool experience. And I, I love seeing that. And I've, I've always loved time travel movies ever since then. You know, and so there's all kinds of different time travel movies, you know, and it's, and so you, you kind of, you can enjoy them in the moment, but what actually happens with time travel movies, if you sit down and think about it afterwards, you're like, well, that didn't really make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> well, that couldn't have worked out like that, and if this was then, then that never would have happened, and, and so those kind of movies are something that, you know, we're better off not thinking too much about, and, and that's really how it is when we as human beings try to mess with time. When we kind of get involved and, well, what if I could just rearrange things? And what if I could just have this happen? If I could work that, it, it just doesn't work out very well. And so that's what I want to think about today is I've entitled my message, The Proper Time. We want to focus on the point that, that only God knows the proper time. But he's the one that determines that. And so by way of introduction, as you hold on to Psalm 74, would you actually turn to your New Testament for just a moment to Acts chapter 1? Because as you're turning to Acts chapter 1, you'll see that the disciples just like us, they, they kind of questioned God's timing. And they, they wondered what was going to happen when. So as you're turning there to Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. Um, he's about to ascend. And so what happens is the disciples have some questions for him. Because if, if you consider the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, there's actually two distinct lines of prophecy. There's the conquering kings prophecies and there's the suffering savior prophecies. And so what happened is the disciples, like us, they really want Jesus to be that conquering king. They just want to, like, man, just kind of overthrow the Romans and take care of business. And so even though Jesus has fulfilled the suffering Savior prophecies, he's risen from the dead, he's resurrected, he's about to ascend, they don't realize that yet. What they're still fixated on is the kingdom, right? They want it to be established. And and so let's pick up in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. It says, and being assembled together with him, he, that's Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but here it is, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And so I want to focus on that for just a minute, that but, but to wait, because that ties into this idea of time that we're talking about this morning. That they were to be patient, they were to wait for that promise from the Father, which he, you have heard from me. And so that's the promise of the Holy Spirit. You can read at the end of John's Gospel, he talks a lot about that. It says, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here it is, not many days from now. Another time marker. Okay, I want you guys to wait. It's not going to be many days. It says, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him. So these are the, the, the disciples, the apostles. They asked him saying, will you at, here's another time marker, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel? And so they're, they're not to read too much into it, but they're kind of like, oh, okay, the Holy Spirit, great, great. But is the kingdom coming? Is this the time? And, and notice how Jesus responds in verse 7. But he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. That's a really nice way of saying none of your business. (laughs) It's none of your business. He says, the Father has put those times and seasons in his own authority. It's not for you. But then he says, this is what is for you, verse 8. But you, 
So, so the times and seasons and the Father's authority, that's his business. But he says to the disciples, but for you, you shall receive power when, another time marker, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here we say that Jesus is saying times and seasons, the Father's put in his own authority. And, and he, says, he says to his disciples, essentially, I love you guys, but it's none of your business. It's not you. Here's what I want you guys to do. I don't want you to worry about these times and seasons. I want you to wait, and I want you to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and then I want you to be witnesses to me. And I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and I want you to be witnesses in Judea, and I want you to be witnesses in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's what I want you to do. And so that's really what, what I want us to focus on today as we think through this passage is, is to say, okay, times and seasons God put in his authority, but it's my job to be a witness. At the proper time, he's going to take care of his business. And it's, as we turn back now to Psalms, it's so funny, as I was putting together this study, I think, how many of these studies are really just the Lord speaking to me and you overhearing <laughs> what he's told me? Because I really struggle with this and being impatient and with these times. And so uh, kind of before we get into Psalm 74, I, I wanted to um, quote from my, one of my second favorite books, you know, the Bible is my first favorite. And then one of my second favorites is Lord of the Rings. And, and so I, I want to quote from the Lord of the Rings because I thought this was a great quote about time. And so this is Gandalf. He's the wise wizard. He, he's the mentor of Frodo. And the ring has come to Frodo. And it's, it's his job to take it. And, and this is what Gandalf says about the evil that's rising, about the evil Sauron. He says, always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. So, so what Gandalf is saying is, here's the deal. We, we, as fighting for good, we've defeated Sauron in the past. We defeated this evil. But what happens is evil takes some time and regroups and comes up again. And here's how Frodo responds. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Frodo says, I wish the ring hadn't come to me. I wish I didn't have to deal with it. I wish the shadow hasn't rising again. I wish I didn't live in this time. And this is what Gandalf said. He says, so do I. <laughs> said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. None of us had a choice at living in this day and age. None of us had a choice in coming to be when we came to be. None of us had a choice of what was going to happen economically and politically in the time in which we live. But all that's been given to us is actually to be those witnesses in the times and seasons God's put in his own authority. To, to choose to say, hey, like Esther, I have been raised up for such a time as this. And so I'll live out what God's called me to right here, right now. And then when it's his time and season to take me home, I'll trust that he can do that. But for now, I'm simply going to do what he's called me to do. All right, Psalm 74. Let's jump into it. Uh, but right away with this intro here in Psalm 74, we see it's a contemplation of Asaph, but we have a little bit of an issue. Because the Asaph that we know about, he lived during the time of David and Solomon's reign. But the things he seems to be speaking about here in Psalm 74, I believe actually fit better with the Babylonian captivity. When the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and took Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all those guys captive. So there's a couple ways to look at that. This may be another Asaph. This was just another name. Or Asaph also could be maybe like a title. 
Then in other words, after this first great Asaph that these other kind of singers and poets and psalmists, kind of they, that was a title or a mantle that they took on. So you can kind of study more of that background on your own. But I'm going to be teaching this from the standpoint that I believe this psalm was written after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem when they took Judah captive. So let's start off with verse 1. We read, the psalmist, O God, why have you cast us off forever? And why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? So as we're going to move through, I'm going to talk about these different time things because that's really connected to our overarching theme. And we see this, this in this midst of affliction, in the midst of this destruction, the psalmist feels like it's going to last forever. Notice that. He says, why have you cast us off forever? And so the thing we want to remind ourselves is that this affliction that he's dealing with, it's not going to last forever. So we use those terms, but it's not really true. I've mentioned it before, but it's one of my favorite t-shirts from high school. A friend of mine named Ramon Medina, he actually used to wear that t-shirt probably once a week. And it had Einstein on the back in a Hawaiian shirt. And it was about the theory of relativity. And it says, sit with a pretty girl for an hour and it feels like a mitten. A minute. Sit on a hot stove for a minute and it feels like an hour. That's a theory of relativity. <laughs> so depending on what we're going through, right, if you go to Hawaii and you have a vacation there and it's a week long, it probably feels like a minute. Okay? But if you're going through difficulty or a stomach bug or something like that, it may last for a day, but it feels like a very, very, very long day. And so that's what we have to remind ourselves, that afflictions are going to feel super long when we're going through them, but they're not going to last forever. Please hear me. Please be reminded, for the believer, no pain is permanent. For the believer, no pain is permanent. Let me give you a couple of verses that tie into this. One of them, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, it says that our, our light affliction, it's but for a moment. And so we may look at that and say, what well, does it feel like a moment? But we have to understand by comparison, compared to eternity, compared to the weight of glory, it's going to be for a moment. But there's actually another way to translate that phrase, but for a moment. It could actually be translated, but for the moment. In other words, God allows difficulties, hardships, pain in our life for that moment, for that purpose, for that time, for that season to accomplish his good goals. So, so it's important for us to understand that. And then also, please, in the midst of your, and, and this, is, this is kind of the training that you do, you want to train yourself for, during times of peace for when trouble comes. Okay? So please, if, if you're in a place today when you're relatively at peace, you know, and things are going, and you're thinking clearly, fill your mind with the scriptures. Meditate upon it day and night. Hide your word, his word in your heart so it would not sin against you. That way, when the pain does hit, these scriptures are available. You have a reservoir of truth that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance so you can live that out. So one of those that I want you to memorize is Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. I would encourage you to memorize Revelation 21, verse 4, which says this, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this promise is for you. 
This is in your future. This is going to happen. You're going to be in that place where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, then I ask you to place your faith in Jesus Christ today and this promise will become yours. That's the offering that we have. All right, let's move on to verse 2 of Psalm 74. It says, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Okay, so again, these are time markers too, but they're the past now, right? Remembering the past, remember the things of old. So Israel had a history with God. So in the midst of their difficulty, Asaph is calling God's attention to that history. God is he's saying to God, hey, remember how we had a history with you? Remember what you've done here at Mount Zion? Remember how you've purchased us out of Egypt? And there's an application for you and for me. In times of trouble, remember that you have a history with God. In times of trouble, remember that this is not your first day as a believer. (laughs) You know, sometimes you can be a believer for 10, 15, 20 years, and tragedy hits, and it's like, well, where's God? I I, I don't know. I don't have any. No, you have a history with God. Remember that. You know, sometimes just, you know how it is, is you get discouraged with life. And it's it's funny, the other day I was was looking for something, uh, you know, on my camera roll on my phone, and I couldn't find it, and I kept scrolling, I kept scrolling, I kept scrolling, and then I just see, like, all these pictures of my family and all the things we've done together. You know? It's, you have a history with your family. You have a history, you know, with people at work. You have a history in life, but interconnected to that history is God is working through all those things. So, so remember that your personal history, God is tied into that. And so, you know, kind of what I would encourage you to do in a sense, spiritually speaking, is scroll through your camera roll of all the things you've done with God. Scroll through that and think about, oh, yeah, remember how I didn't even care anything about the Lord and he, and he called to me and, and remember how God answered this prayer and remember how God put this person in my life. And remember those things. Remember that you have a history with God. Now, let's move on with verses three through eight. It says, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. And so that lifting up your feet, is kind of like God run, you know, run toward us, help us. He says, the enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up from their, their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. So I think this is a, a picture the psalmist is describing of the destruction of the temple. You know, it was Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and so, so he's writing about this picture and he's wanting, you know, God to intervene. He's wanting God to show up, God to run and help. Very vivid imagery. Let's move on to verses 9 through 11. It says, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there uh, among us, here it is, who knows how long. Another time marker. No, the, the prophets don't know how long this is going to be. And he says, oh, Lord, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, take it out of your bosom and destroy them? So Asaph is he's lamenting this destruction of Israel, both physically and spiritually, 
the destruction of the temple, the taking of people captive. And so he wonders over and over again, really, how long things will be this way, right? And isn't that for us? Like, if we just knew how long something was going to last, then oftentimes we can make it through, right? But sometimes if you're, you're sitting in this waiting room and you just have no idea how long you're going to be there, that makes it so much worse, And so he's just asking how long. And and we have to understand that this is really how it is for the Christian life. Because as we we run the race, the Lord says, hey, go out there and run. But you ask, well, how long is it going to be? And he says, well, until I take you home. (laughs) Well, how long is that going to be? Right? And so it's a challenge for us. Now, I want you to notice something interesting here in verses 9 through 11. Asaph doesn't doubt God's power to intervene. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't doubt that God has the power to intervene. He simply desires that God would go ahead and take out the enemies. So so there's a difference here. It's not that Asaph thinks God is incapable of judging. He just wonders how long it's going to be until he judges. He's being impatient with that. We understand that, that we become impatient when we're suffering. Now, you know, it's, it's been well said, right, in this famous song, you know, waiting is the hardest part. And that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and I, I kind of want to show you something related to this in the book of Revelation. So would you turn to the last uh, book of the Bible? We're going to look at Revelation chapter 6. Because it's interesting. Um, and, and I would encourage you to study the book of Revelation. Go back to it often. I've taught through it. Um, you know, there's many great uh, commentators I can, I can direct you toward. But there's a lot of things in the book of Revelation that will actually kind of change up how we view heaven. You know, sometimes we view heaven um, incorrectly. And so we have something here is very interesting. In Revelation chapter 6, I'm going to look at verses 9 through 11. So if you're familiar with it, with these, uh, we're having the seal judgments. Okay, the lamb is opening the seals. And so when he opens the fifth seal, what we see starting in verse 9, it says, when he, that's the lamb, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Okay. So let me give you a little bit of context. During the seven-year tribulation period, what's going to happen is there's going to be incredible revival. There's going to be all kinds of people being saved. But as those people are saved, the Antichrist is going to go after them and that many will be martyred for their faith. And so these, that's what we have here in verse 9. These are individuals who have been martyred for their faith. They're in heaven. But notice their response in verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long? Another, another time marker there. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is pretty wild. That redeemed souls are in heaven, and they're not just happy to be there. <laughs> that they want God to pour out his judgment upon evil on the earth. They, they want that to, to be done with. But notice how the response that's given to them in verse 11, that a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, that they should settle down, that they should relax. Notice, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. More radical stuff. That they're essentially told, hey, you guys just settle down because the the number of martyrs hasn't been filled up yet. More martyrs are going to be killed for their faith. And God has a purpose and a plan in this suffering. So this is a radical, radical passage because this is not often how we view heaven. It's really, really interesting. 
And so as we look at that, what, what I want to bring out from this, these verses here is that judgment will come upon the unrepentant. Every unrepentant person will be judged. But here's the deal. We as human beings don't get to ter- determine when that will be. It's not for us. It's not for us to determine when that will be. And so um, that's what these guys are being told. And we'll kind of come back to that a little bit more a little bit later. So would you turn back to Psalm 74? We look at verses 12 through 17 now. The psalmist writes, For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the head of Leviathan in pieces. You gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up the mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth, and you have made summer and winter. Okay, a lot going on here. You know, it's heavy, heavily symbolic imagery. Um, but, but notice, I want you to focus for just a second, kind of ties into our message last week. As we look at verses 12 through 17, the focus is on you and yours, right? So the psalmist is focusing on God. You have done this. You have done this. This is yours. You have done this. This is yours. And that's always a good place for us to be as believers. You know, it's been well said about Satan, his fall, that Satan had an eye problem right? I will be as the most high. I will ascend the mount. I will do these things. And so for you and I, when we find ourselves using language, it's all I and me and I and me and I and me. It's generally speaking, our heart's not in a good place. But when we focus on you and yours, if, if God, it's, it's God is the focus and his stuff and, and his creation and his plan and his purposes, then all of a sudden it's going to put our heart back in the right place. And so that's what we have here in verses 12 through 17 is really that God is the creator and God's the boss. That's really the heart behind this. And so we would be wise to regularly remind ourselves God is God overall. God is the God over political parties and pandemics and everything else. God is a God over it all. He's the boss. It belongs to him. He'll take it where he needs it to go. I was just listening to an audio book this morning and it was in Ephesians and talking about how in Ephesians chapter one, it says God works all things together to the counsel of his own will. He's doing it. He's putting it together. And so I would encourage you uh, to, to be, um, I would encourage you to be encouraged. Sorry about that. Uh, Isaiah 44 verse eight is an encouragement for us. This is God speaking in Isaiah 44 verse eight. God says, do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. (laughs) So I love that. And it's kind of similar language as you read through Isaiah, um, that Isaiah basically says, is there any other God? Because I haven't seen him. Um, And so we have to remind ourselves, God is the only God. He's got it taken care of. He's the boss. All right, let's look at verses 18 through 23 now. It says, remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant. In the dark places of the haunts, uh, sorry, in the dark places of the earth are, are full of haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. 
Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Okay, so really what we have in verses 18 through 23, it's a lot of familiar language to us from the Psalms, and it's essentially a cry for relief. It's a cry for relief. It's a cry, Lord, hey, would you punish the wicked and deliver the believer? It's a common theme throughout the scriptures. And I pray, I ask that you would pray for this, right? God, take away the power of the wicked, deliver the believer. Because ultimately what we're doing for that is we're praying for God's kingdom to come. Right, Lord, I just want your will to be done here on earth. And I want your will to be done. And I want, you know, uh, but, but here's the, the, the one thing that we can do. Or two things we can do. We can pray for that to happen, and then we can exercise it in our own lives. Okay, so much of our frustration comes as we spend much time daily observing all the people in this world that aren't obeying the Lord. And, and then considering all the maddening ramifications of their failure to serve the Lord, and how can that can impact me and my life and my family and all those things. Well, instead of spending all our time doing that, Let's pray for the Lord, for his will to be done, his kingdom to come, and then let's exercise that in our, in our own life. We're the only person we can control. And so we say, I can't do anything about these people around me, but what I can do is, is I can seek to allow God's kingdom to have access to my heart. I can seek to obey him on a daily basis. That's what I can do. And what you're going to find is you're going to be encouraged and empowered because you can actually do something about you. You can choose to live that life. You can walk in obedience no matter what's going on around you. All right, let's move on to Psalm 75 now. And so, again, we have by Asaph, to the chief musician set to do not destroy a psalm of Asaph, a song. Okay, a couple of main ways people look at this. Psalm 75, okay, it's its own psalm. That's great. Some people look at Psalm 75 as actually written by the same Asaph from Psalm 74, and then this is kind of his, you know, his crying out to the Lord and then how Lord responds to him. So either, so it could be that Psalm 75 is, if we might use it this way, an answer to Psalm 74. So that's one way to look at it. I, I can't be dogmatic about it. I don't know for sure, but I think it's interesting to consider. All right. Verse one, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. So I want you to focus on those two phrases right there, give thanks and wondrous works. Give thanks and wondrous works. The application for you and for I is to take time to consider God's wondrous works and give thanks for them. Now, I'm a mess of a person. Anyone who's spent any time with, that know, with me knows that. And I don't know how much in my own life, you know, when it's just my own sinfulness, when it's, you know, spiritual warfare going on. I don't, I don't have a good enough grasp of all of that. But here's what I do know. When I start going into a, a, a bad place and kind of go into darkness in my own mind and heart, I become very unthankful. And, and then I, and I convince myself in that moment where there's nothing to be thankful for. Why should I be happy about anything? Why should I have any gratitude? And that's just a really bad place to be. And it's a false place to be. Right. So one of the things that, that I've, you know, different books I've read and, and things I've heard of and, and thought about is, is to actually when you're in that moment, if you're anything like me and you kind of come to a moment like that, is actually just stop and just make a short list of things you can be thankful for. Okay. And so, so I did that. So don't judge me on this list. 
and the order. I don't want you to write them down and say, well, he shouldn't have put that number four. You know, I mean, he's really got this messed up. I, I purposely thought, I'm going to share this with the congregation, so I, I don't need to be manufactured. <laughs> I need it to just be as it come to me. So I just thought, I sat there, I thought of ten things that God has provided for me personally that I am thankful for. Okay, and, and number one that I wrote down was memory. I'm thankful for memory. I'm thankful that, that God has given me a memory that I can remember things and think about things. I'm thankful for my family that he's blessed me with. I'm thankful for the Bible. I'm thankful for friends. I'm thankful for a house. I'm thankful for a vehicle, a vehicle that I can go places. I'm thankful for food. I'm thankful for wisdom. I'm thankful for forgiveness. And the number 10, I said, I'm thankful for the sky. I like looking to this, you know, and, and some days in Midland, you can see the sky. <laughs> Others, you can just see the dust. Uh, but, but I'm thankful for those things, and that was just a short list. And then what I would encourage you to do is when you find yourself being unthankful is, is to make a short list and then actually just pray through those things, just to thank God for them. It's, it's a very helpful exercise to reorient you and reorient me toward truth. Because those are all things to be thankful for, and your list is going to change. And there was another exercise in a book that I went through with a friend of mine, and it was, it was a list of 50 things to be thankful for. And I have to be honest with you, it was actually really easy to do. When you, when you just take some time, and so that's what I encourage you, is like to find those wondrous works that God has done in your life, and then to give him thanks for that. All right, let's move on to verse 2 now. It says, when I choose the proper time, there it is, there's the title for the message, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. So this is the Lord speaking here, and so the Lord is saying, he will choose when he will judge. Those times and seasons he's put in his authority. And I have to, I have to tell you that as I read through the scriptures, I don't see any wiggle room in this. I don't see any wiggle room where God says, hey, you guys are going to be the ones to judge these things instead of me. No, no, he's going to judge. Now, there is going to be a time when we're in the millennial kingdom and it says that we're going to judge angels. That's pretty radical to think about, right? When you get in those positions of authority. But we have to understand that when once you and I are in the millennial kingdom in that place, we're going to be completely redeemed people. No sin nature anymore, none of those things. And so for now, because of our fallenness, because of our limitedness, we're just not the people to judge. We're not to, to, to judge these final things. Jesus is. And so I, I wanted to highlight this because I think this is an important place. Would you turn to John chapter 5 for just a moment? John chapter 5. Um, I want to look at verses 21 through 30. And a couple of things I want to point out to you here is really, the number one is we're focusing on judgment, that, that we need to give over kind of this, this idea of, of when, when is this judgment going to happen to the Lord? The Lord is the one who determines when judgment's going to happen. But also I want you to focus on in John chapter 5 is the deity of Christ. A lot of people, you know, they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and he's not really God. And, and that's just, I just say, have you read the Bible? Because <laughs> here in John chapter 5, verses 21 through 30, see the things Jesus is saying, and it's clear that he is saying that he is God because only God can judge in this way. So John 5, starting in verse 21, Jesus says, for as the Son gives uh, so as, uh, as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, here it is, but has committed all judgment to the son. Okay, so if all judgment has been committed to the son, there's none left over for you and I. <laughs> 
There's none left over for you and I to de- de- demand and determine when that will be. He says, and all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and, and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear his voice and the son of God hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, now please don't misunderstand me. When I'm saying about this judgment, I'm not saying that you can't say something's right or wrong. Okay? So, so if you see me leaving here and throwing a rock through Eleazar's window, call me on that. You can judge me. That is wrong. Okay? What I'm saying is we don't get to be the ones who do the final judgment or tell God when it's going to be and and how could you and it needs to be already. That's not for us, right? Because even if, if you tell me that it's wrong for me to throw a rock through his window, which it is, then what you're doing is you're saying God has said it's wrong and you better amend your ways or he's going to take care of that. So, so that's important for us to understand. The big idea is that the Lord Jesus will judge this fallen world in the timing set by the Father, and we don't have a say in the matter. And guess what? That's incredibly good news because we can trust him to judge in his timing, and we can actually take care of our business that we've been given to. So much of our frustration and anxiety comes from trying to do things that it's not our job to do. You know, it, it's so like I've, I've already been, you know, thinking through and I need to pray through watching the Super Bowl today. Because <laughs> what's going to happen? I'll end up going for a team and then I'll be angry about this coach who's not calling the plays I want him to call. I'm not a coach. <laughs> it's not my job. It's not mine to judge in that way. All right, let's go back to Psalm 75, moving into verse 3 now says, the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. In other words, God will destroy what needs to be destroyed. God will take out who needs to be taken out. God will set up those things that need to stay. Verses 4 and 5, I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. Okay. So this imagery is a little challenging for us if we haven't, you know, kind of spent any time on a ranch because this, this imagery is of a horned animal, okay? And so one of the most common horned animals in those times would have been an ox. And so you all who've had pets, you know that different pets or just different animals in general, they have different personalities. Some, some animals, will, they'll, they'll, they're trainable, they're teachable, they'll do what you ask. Other animals, no matter what you do, they don't listen <laughs> And so the Lord is saying here to the people, hey, don't be like an ox who's too proud to take the yoke. That's, that's the imagery here. And so if you know what a, a, you know, a yoke is, it's, you know, there's, it's this piece of wood that's put on an animal so that the animal might plow the field. And so the often, often this yoke that's talked about in the New Testament is actually a double yoke. Sometimes you would take these two animals and you would yoke them together so they could do double the work 
right? It says one ox power, you got two ox power, right? So that's what they're doing. And so Jesus talked about it this way in Matthew chapter 11. Let me read it for you. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. It's familiar to you. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, there it is, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is saying to to these individuals, and he's saying to us, is he says, if you'll humble yourself... You can be yoked together to me, and we can do life together. And my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And what happened in the ancient times when you put these two animals together, one animal would be stronger than the other. And so the stronger animal does most of the work, and the, the, the other animal, as if he just didn't fight against a stronger animal, he could just enjoy the work together. Jesus is the stronger ox, if I can use that phrase. He's the one doing most of the work. But, but, but think about this now. Jesus is essentially referring to us as an, as an ox. So what good is an ox that refuses the yoke? See, that's what we have in, on human history. That's why there's so much messes is there's all these people that Jesus wants to yoke to them, but they say, well, I'm an ox, but I'm meant for something else. No, an ox was created to serve. You and I were created to serve our master. And so the question for us to ask as we think about this, as we think about kind of this boastfulness and this pride, is will you and I submit to the being yoked to Jesus? And, and here's the problem, though. Jesus is going to take us into some fields that we didn't want to go into. He's going to, we're going to, we're like, whoa, this is not the kind of field I wanted to plow. <laughs> But that's where he's going to take us. Will we submit to his leadings? Will we submit to his plans, to his purposes? Please understand, this is something that the the Lord really spoke to me this week. The Lord Jesus is not the means to our ends. We are the means to his ends. That's really, really important. It's very easy for us to use Jesus as basically just therapy. He's therapeutic. I I need Jesus to just kind of help me do what I want to do. And that's that's not what it's about. It's about us submitting to his leading. And, and you know what? When, when you submit to that, you and I submit that, that I'm just a, a means to his ends, takes the pressure off. Because now it's not about getting my thing done and my purposes and my plans. It's about his purpose. It's his plan. It's his will. It, it's, it's what he wants. All right, let's continue on. Verses 6 and 7 says, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is a judge. He puts down one and exalts another. It's really important for us. God alone exalts. No man can truly exalt another. And we know this because as much as mankind exalts one another and they praise one another, they forget. You know, when I, when I was a kid, Dan Marino. Man, Dan Marino, what a quarterback and what a strong arm and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I love Dan Marino. I thought he was just such a great athlete. You know what? You talk to kids about Dan Marino today, who's that? <laughs> they have no idea. And so that's how it is. The day is going to come when people forget about LeBron. The day is going to come when all of these things fade away. Because human beings, they can only exalt someone so high and then it crumbles away over time. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if we put ourselves up on a pedestal, Jesus is going to be like, I have to knock you down. (laughs) But if we'll humble ourselves, Jesus says, I'll exalt you. 
and in my timing, and it's exaltation that's going to stay. So if you really want to really be somebody on planet Earth, humble yourself before the Lord. Just humble yourself and allow him to exalt you in his timing, in his way, in his purposes. All right, verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, and he pours it out, and surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Ooh, this is, this is a vivid imagery. It's this idea of this bitter drink of judgment. That's what's being referred to. So if, if you understand this correctly, if you understand this Old Testament imagery of this cup of judgment being drunk, uh, drunk down, then you can make sense of Jesus in the garden. You see, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read this in Matthew 26, verse 39, the night before his crucifixion, he says, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's a cup of judgment. So you see, Jesus knew that the only way to save mankind was to drink this cup of judgment. And this is really important for us because everyone, right, is going to have to drink a cup of judgment for themselves unless Christ already drank it for them. That's incredibly important. This is a very, very important to me. See, uh, the, the fact of the matter, the Bible teaches that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have to drink the cup of judgment because Jesus drank it for you at the cross. And so that's the offer. The offer is that no one has to drink the cup of judgment if they'll just place their faith in Jesus Christ. So every human being has this choice. Will you drink the cup of God's wrath, or did Christ drink it for you? Now, the reason why the world's such a mess and why people reject Christ is they don't believe there's a cup of judgment. They don't believe that judgment's coming. They don't believe that, that anyone's going to ultimately tell them that they've done wrong. But we know the scriptures make it clear that there is a judgment coming. Okay, and you can read about it in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. But that's what we need to offer to people. Hey, we all deserve the, the wrath of God for our sins, but Christ drank it for us on the cross. So if you place your faith in him, you will be saved and that cup will pass away. Verse 9 says, but I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And so what, notice what's happened in verse 8, right? Verse 8 is the wicked drinking the cup of wrath. And so Asaph, is, he's contrasting himself with those people in verse 8. He's saying, I'm in a different category. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something different. And what I want you to see about verse 9 is verse 9 is about choice, right? He's making a choice. I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. He's making a choice to praise God. He's making a choice to follow God. And so this is a key for you and I. Choose to pray, exalt God, pray and exalt God by faith and our feelings will follow. Here's what, here's what you and I often do. We don't feel like praising the Lord, so we don't. Okay? But we can't let our feelings be the leaders. Our faith has to be the leader. We need to let faith. So, so as by faith, we begin to praise and exalt God. Then what happens? We'll find this is a sneaky thing. Our feelings follow. You guys made the choice to come on Sunday morning knowing that, that the expectation was for you to, to sing some songs to the Lord. You may not have felt like it, but if you make the choice by faith and saying, I don't, I don't feel like it right now, but I'm going to go ahead and sing to the Lord anyway. And the weird thing that happens, your feelings start to follow. Your, your feelings get in line. So let faith be the leader. 
Let faith be the driver and let feelings be the follower. And so actively choose to grow in your faith and your feelings will follow. So build your faith. Read your Bible. Pray. Serve. Be discipled. Disciple others. Fellowship together. Spend your time in faith-building things and you'll find your feelings following. All right. I want to read for you this before we move into verse, our last verse, verse 10. This is what, kind of tying into this doing things that are, are faith building. This is what, how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He said, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was continually doing things that built his own faith continuing pursuing the Lord and praising the Lord and doing these things. And you have to know that Paul didn't always feel like it. Being chained to a Roman soldier, being kicked out of towns, being stoned and beaten and imprisoned, being shipwrecked. He, he didn't, uh, surely he wasn't just like, man, this, this is awesome what I signed up for. I just love this so much. No, those feelings weren't always there, but he was so pursuing Christ by faith that the feelings followed after. All right, verse 10, final verse, says, All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be exalted. Now, as a graduate of Texas A&M, Psalm 75, verse 10, it was on a lot of our merchandise uh, as we aimed it toward the Texas Longhorns, that the horns of the wicked shall be cut off. And so it's a really special verse uh, for me, just really a, a life verse. But as, as you look at verse 10, though, what's being truly communicated, all kidding aside, is that the day is coming when all the wicked will be judged in God's time. They'll be removed, and all those who have trusted in the Lord will be exalted and enjoy unbroken fellowship with him. That's a day to look forward to. And we have to remind ourselves that all this will happen in the proper time. And, and so I just want to close now. Before we move to our songs at the end, our worship to the Lord, I want to close with a quote from a, a Christian teacher and author named Kenneth Boa, and I've learned a lot from him. And, and this is what he'll, he says, quote, The great saints through the ages learned the wisdom of having only two days on their calendars, today and that day, the day that they would be with the Lord. If we want a heart of wisdom, we should learn to live each day in the light of that day. And to which I will add, that day will come at the proper time.